Uh, you, you can open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 1 this morning, going into chapter 2. Uh, and so you can open up there a while if you want. When my wife and I moved to our house seven years ago, there was a large garden out back that was included with the house. Uh, so like 100 feet by 40 feet garden. And, and I had these dreams when we moved there of being this fantastic gardener. Right, I'm going to plant fruit and vegetables in this plot of dirt. We're going to harvest fresh food. Maybe even we'll can it. Like this is going to be incredible. And within a year of our first try, that patch of dirt was covered with grass to never be used again. Right? Well, you're like, what, what happened? Like, I had these big dreams. What happened? Well, opposition happened. Opposition happened to my dream. First of all, in the form of weeds. Like I expected weeds but not so many weeds. Weeds that grew all over the place and like seemed to pop back faster than I could pull them out. Th then after weeds came the animals. Rabbits, groundhogs, raccoons, I think deer, maybe other animals as well. So I fought back and I put up a chicken wire fence around our plot of dirt, only to have them bend down the chicken wire fence, climb over and get our vegetables. So I fought back again, and I bought stakes and put stakes all around this chicken wire fence, only to have them crawl under the fence, get into the garden, get all our vegetables. Like, I, we didn't get much at all from our garden. I think the only thing we got that year was tomatoes and maybe a couple of vegetables, and, and I don't even like tomatoes. I can't remember why we planted those in the first place. And so because I faced all this opposition, I gave up, said this is too much, I'm not going to keep gardening. Whenever we set out to do something in our lives or accomplish something, it's inevitable that we will face opposition along the way. Just think about anything you've tried to do, accomplish, any goal you've set, you can probably think of opposition you faced. And the same reality is true for any follower of Jesus. That as we set out to know, love, trust, and obey Jesus, it is inevitable that we will face challenges and difficulties and opposition along the way. That, that opposition might come in the form of what we believe and people being opposed to that. Or, or it just might come in the form of any time we seek to obey God and where he's leading us and what he's prompting us to do that we face some difficulty, challenge, or setback along the way. And when opposition comes, it's discouraging and it's tempting to just give up. And I don't mean here like give up the faith entirely, although that's, that's a possibility. But, but what I mean here is that like God's called us to obey in some area. We step out, we start obeying, and then it's just too difficult. And so we give up and move on. Like, like maybe it's as simple as giving up trying to develop a habit of praying and reading the scriptures because it's just too difficult. Or, or giving up leading our families and discipling our families because it's, it's just too difficult just too challenging to get kids to sit and listen to us as we try to read the Bible or, or pray with them. Maybe it's a, an area of ministry that, that we're gifted and know that God's called us to, but, but we give up because it's just too difficult. That, that maybe it's giving up on the church because it's just too difficult to be a part of the church. That, that maybe it's giving up on a marriage because it's just too difficult to, to love a fellow sinner 
that, that maybe it's giving up on reaching the lost and reaching our neighborhoods because it's just too difficult to reach people with the gospel. Pick any area of your life where it's difficult to obey Jesus and it's tempting to give up because it's discouraging and difficult. But God wants his people to press on in the face of opposition. God calls his people to press on in the face of opposition. That's the big idea this morning as we look at the end of Zechariah 1 and then Zechariah 2 as well. The, the book of Zechariah is written to Israelites who returned home from exile in Babylon, remember. And God's brought them home with a mission to build the temple and then to rebuild Jerusalem, the capital city. And they come back motivated and excited and ready to go. Like God's brought us home, let's do this. Within a couple months, they build an altar so they can make sacrifices to God and start worshiping him again in that way. Within a year, they've got a foundation for the temple laid. They're excited, they're going. And then all of a sudden, everything stalls out for the next 16 years. We might ask, well, why? What, what happened? Opposition happened. We can read in Ezra 4, 4 through 5, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And if you remember, Zechariah is now talking in the second year of Darius's reign. See, God sends prophets like Haggai and Zechariah to command and motivate his people to keep going in the face of opposition. And so one of Zechariah's main goals and purposes is to motivate God's people, press on, press on. Whatever opposition you're facing, press on. And I would say that's especially what he's trying to do when we come to the second and third vision he has that we're going to read this morning. And so we'll pray and then pick up in Zechariah 1, verse 18. God, I have no doubt that in here this morning, there are lots of us that are facing some sort of opposition in our lives that probably don't have to look far for what that might be. And I pray that you might use this morning by your grace to enable us to press on and keep going, believing that you are a big God with big plans who's at work and that we might walk out stirred, motivated, encouraged to keep pressing on in how you've called us to obey you and follow Jesus. God, the only way that that happens is if your spirit uses your word to do it. And so I pray that that's what you do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up in Zechariah 1, 18. We'll read through the end of chapter 2, actually. And again, we should know that like some of what we come across in Zechariah is going to be confusing, but, but we'll hit on it as we walk back through it then this morning. This is Zechariah's second vision. I lifted up my eyes and I saw, behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scatter Jerusalem so that no one raised his head. And these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said to him, where, where are you going? And he said, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. 
And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me and that Jerusalem will inherit Judah as its portion or that the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Whether you read the Bible or just simply look across history, it doesn't take long to realize that God's people have almost always faced opposition. It just doesn't take long to realize that, that God's people have almost always faced some form of opposition. And that opposition is pictured in this first vision in the end of chapter one as four horns, Right, that's foreign to us. Horns, what are you talking about? Picture big animal horns. B- because what those symbolized at this time was military might and power and political authority. And they came to symbolize all the nations that were opposed to God's people, the Israelites. That's what you got to picture with these horns. And this is where you can get in the weeds and people say, well, what, why four horns, right? Is, it, is God talking about four specific nations or is he talking about all the nations throughout history who have opposed God's people? And I think rather than getting too far down in the weeds, although that can be helpful, it's just for us to take it at face value and to recognize God's people always face opposition. The Israelites in this day and those who love, trust, and obey Jesus today always face opposition, that God's people should expect opposition in this life. That should be our expectation, that we will face opposition in this life as followers of Jesus. That, that opposition might come in different forms at different times, right? At, at some times throughout history, and even today, I would say in other nations, not so much in our nation, that's come in the form of state opposition, where the government persecutes Christians for being a Christian, for evangelizing, or for converting. That, that's not us as the American church today overall. It may be someday, but it's lots of people in the world today. But, but, but the second thing we might say, a, a second form of opposition, opposition, is just kind of a cultural opposition to God's people and what they believe, right? And I'm guessing you feel this more and more. Like where, where it's not just so much what Christians believe is seen as irrelevant, an old-fashioned, but it's actually seen as, as bigoted, right? That, that, that you feel this kind of press maybe, like what I believe is, is more and more despised, not just seen as irrelevant. And, and the reality is that I would guess that gets worse, that we would feel that press more before it gets better. 
And then maybe a third type of opposition that we might just identify that God's people have experienced all throughout history is a type of spiritual opposition. And I hesitate to label it that because the first two forms are really spiritual as well. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but spiritual powers. But what I mean by that is that anytime we set out to obey God in something he's called us to do, there seems to be difficulty and challenges and opposition that we face along the way. As Israel sought to obey God by building the temple, opposition came. As we seek to obey God in the mission he's given us, which is to continue to build the temple, right? Not the physical temple, but God's church. By making disciples, by growing in Christ-likeness. As we do those things, we should expect there's going to be challenges, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be opposition. Do, do we believe Jesus' words when he says in John 16:33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Bible is clear. If you love, trust, and obey Jesus, expect opposition. And it's really important for us to expect that opposition so we're not caught off guard by it when it happens in our lives. I mean, I think it's just good for us to ask, what are you expecting? What am I expecting as a follower of Jesus in this life? Am I expecting smooth sailing? Or am I expecting the seas are going to be stormy at times? Am I expecting like a walk in the park? Or am I expecting it's going to be hard and difficult at times as I walk through this life seeking to follow Jesus? Because if we aren't expecting opposition, it's going to be far more likely that we'll give up when it comes. I I think about uh, when I was in high school, I got into playing paintball because that's what all my friends were kind of doing at the time. So I went out and I bought a paintball gun and I bought all the paintball stuff and I prepared to play my first game of paintball. And I think back and I think, what, what would have it been like if my expectation going into paintball was like, this is just going to be a fun way to enjoy uh, nature and God's creation, right? I'm just going to go for a little walk in the woods, see the trees, watch the birds, hear them sing, maybe pop off my gun a couple times at a tree. This is going to be lots of fun. This is going to be great. And then I get out there on the field and all of a sudden people start shooting at me and I'm getting hit with paintballs, and they're leaving welts? Wait, what? This isn't what I thought. If that was my expectation, I'm going to be far more likely to walk off that field and say, I'm done. But if someone told me as I'm going into it, hey, you're going to get shot at. You're going to get hit. It's going to sting. It might leave a welt, but it's going to be okay then I'm going to be far more likely to press on when people are shooting at me out there and I'm getting hit by paintballs in the middle of this. See, what our expectation is shapes how we will respond when opposition comes our way. And so I think we just need to ask again, what are our expectations as followers of Jesus? What are our expectations? Is it that life's going to be easy and smooth, or is it that we're going to face opposition as we disciple our kids, as we seek to reach our neighbors, as we hold to the truth of the Bible, as we attempt to reach the lost in this world? Are we expecting that's going to be easy, or are we expecting that's going to be difficult, and there's going to be opposition that comes our way? But, but more than just knowing that opposition is going to come our way, I think we need truth that we can cling to 
that enables us to get through opposition. And I would say that's part of what God's doing in the second vision in chapter two, or the third vision. He's giving us truths that we can cling to that might enable us to press on in the face of opposition. And so as we look back through chapter two, this is what I want to do. I want to hopefully give us seven things that we should know when we face opposition in this life. And here's my goal in this. Here's my hope in this. And it's what I believe this vision is meant to do. That in the face of whatever opposition you are experiencing or encountering in your life or may encounter, these seven things might inject steel into our veins and enable us to keep going and pressing on no matter what comes our way. That, that's, that's the goal with these seven things. Okay? That, that's the hope. So let, let's look at them. First, God's plans exceed our imagination. That's a really good thing for us to know. God's plans exceed our wildest imagination. That's part of what this vision is meant to get at. Because we see this man in the beginning of the vision running to Jerusalem to measure its length and width. He's like an architect who's going to draw up plans for rebuilding Jerusalem, right? And then we find that, well, there's an angel that runs after him, says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jerusalem will be like villages that are inhabited without walls. It's this idea, it's going to spread out. It's going to be full of people and animals. It's going to overflow. See, this architect had a vision. God's going to rebuild Jerusalem. All right, let's go get ready and build it back up. And God is saying to this man, no, 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 no. Your vision is too small. I'm going to do something bigger and better than you can imagine. Jerusalem's going to overflow one day. When we face opposition in this life, it has a tendency to narrow our vision down to whatever difficulty we're facing. And we need God to enlarge our vision. And to remember, we've got a big God with big plans that exceed our imagination that that might help us face whatever difficulty or opposition we're facing in the moment, right? That, that God says to me, Kyle, you can't see the whole picture, and frankly, you couldn't imagine if I would tell you what I'm going to do, what I am doing, so keep pressing on in the face of whatever difficulty you're facing. That's number one. Number two, God will preserve his people through opposition. The angel says in this vision, God will be a wall of fire around his people. That's an incredible image. God will be a wall of fire around his people. We're like, what, what is going on with that image? Well, we have to understand at this time, to have a city without walls is a really, really bad thing because it leaves you open and vulnerable to attack from anyone at any time, right? You got no walls, people come in at any time and get you. It, a city without walls is sort of like a home without locks today. That's kind of what it's like. I, I would guess all of you, or at least most of you, when you leave your house for work, you lock up your doors. When you go to sleep at night, you lock up your doors, right? Maybe even triple checking, are they locked? Why? We, we live in a pretty safe part of the world even, and we still do this. Why? because we know that to have doors on lock leaves us open and vulnerable to attack. And by locking those doors, it, it presents a barrier to someone coming to rob us or harm us. A city without walls is a home with no locks. And yet, notice what God says to them. Don't worry, 
I got you. I got you. I'm going to be your security. I'm going to be your wall of fire. I'm going to protect you, even though you don't have walls around your city. Listen, I, I don't know what type of security system you have on your home back at your house. Like maybe you got cameras and maybe you have like an instant buzzer that goes off if someone steps onto your ground. But here's what I can guarantee you. Your security system is not as good as a wall of fire. It's just not. Think about it. I'm not a robber, okay? I'm a pastor. But if I was a robber and I'm driving around looking for a house that I'm going to rob and I see a wall of fire around your house, I know I don't want that one. I'm going to the next one. This is what God, God said. I've got you. I'm a wall of fire around you. And, and we hear that and we might think, well, wait a second, where's this wall of fire at? Right? People get killed for their faith. Christians take a beating in the public. Christians attempt to obey God and, and they, they seem so weak and small and discouraged. Where's this wall of fire at? But by the way, we should know that's going to be the case for the Israelites for the next 500 years after Zechariah. They get wrecked when Greece and Rome come in again and again and again. Like, wh where's this wall of fire at? The reality is God doesn't prevent his people from facing harm and opposition. But he preserves them through it and ultimately uses it to serve them. Like, God doesn't prevent his people from facing difficulty and harm and opposition, but he ultimately ends up using it in such a way where it benefits us in the long run. I mean, I, th this is what Paul had to believe when he wrote eight, Romans 8, 36 through 37. Because he says, for your sake, for your sake, God, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says in the very next verse, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who talks like that? You hear that? We are like sheep getting picked off out here. And we are more than conquerors. That's crazy talk. Unless you believe deep down, God will use whatever opposition we face, including even death itself, to end up serving us in the long run. And when we do believe that deep down, that injects steel into our veins to press on through whatever opposition we're facing moment by moment. No, number three, God's glory is better than our comfort. God's encouraging his people who return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. They would have had to give up their comfort to do that. God's encouraging or calling the people who remain in exile because they've got a comfortable home in Persia to come back home because he's going to display his glory in judging the nations. Both of these are calls for the Israelites to give up their comfort for the sake of experiencing and seeing God's glory. God's telling them, give up your comfort so that you might see my glory because I'm coming back to dwell in Jerusalem again. And God's saying to his people, to live for his glory is better than living for our own comfort. I think we need to know when opposition comes, the end goal of seeing and experiencing God's glory and living with him both now and forever is far, infinitely, so much better than having a life of comfort and ease here on this earth. And if we know that deep down, that enables us to press on. Like th this is what the runner believes that enables the runner to press on in a race. 
right? Like when your lungs are burning and your legs are cramping and your stomach is hurting, why does a runner keep going? Because the glory of reaching the finish line is better than whatever pain they're experiencing in that moment. As Christians, when our lungs are burning, our legs are cramping, and we don't know if we can take another step, what keeps us going, knowing that the, the, the goodness the, of seeing God's glory is better, and so we keep going. Like when, when obedience is difficult and it'd be easier just to give up, what keeps us going? That we're going to see God's glory. When being a Christian is really difficult and it'd be easier just to blend in, what keeps us going, enabling us to sacrifice our comfort day after day after day? We're going to see God's glory one day. Keep going. It's better. It's better. That's why Paul can say about all his afflictions, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Number four, God can bring incredible reversals in an instant. Right? God sent his people into exile, but in this passage he says he's going to judge the nations who have taken his people in exile. That he's going to reverse everything in a moment. He's going to cause them to be plunder for those who serve them. That's what he says in verse nine. That's an echo back to Egypt, where in one night God brought slaves, the Israelites, out of Egypt and caused them to plunder the Egyptians. That's the echo that's happening right here. And, and do you notice how the angel of the Lord says it's going to happen? He's going to wave his hand. He's going to wave his hand and it's going to happen. That God can overcome the greatest opposition by simply a wave of his hand. Do, do we believe that? Like in an instant, God can reverse the greatest opposition with a snap of his fingers. Because if we do, it means whatever opposition you and I are facing right now, God can reverse, overturn, or undo in a moment, right? Like as, as, as you seek to, in your own life, disciple other people, whether in your family or outside your family, and all you experience is resistance, God can change that in an instance. Keep going. As you're praying for people to come to know Christ, and you feel like, man, they don't care at all. There's no interest there. God can change that in an instant. Keep going. God can bring about the greatest reversals in a moment with the flick of his hand. Number five, God's love for his people is amazing. I wish there was a better word than amazing there. I couldn't come up with it, so that's what I stuck with. But there's a phrase in this passage that just leaves me stunned and awestruck when we think about God's love for his people. It's in verse eight where God says to his people, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Do you know what God's saying there? If someone pokes you, it's as if they're poking my eyeball. That's an incredible image, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but, but if someone else pokes me in the eyeball, that's a big deal. That's serious business. <laughs> Right? Like I think someone can poke me in the arm and it can be like, ah, no big deal, I'll brush that off. Someone can poke me in the chest, like, okay, well, may maybe we have a problem now. If someone goes mow from the three stooges and pokes me in the eyeballs, like, that's serious, okay. God is saying, when someone pokes you, when you face opposition, people are opposing what is most sensitive to me. Like the God who can wave his hand and scatter the nations in an instant says to his people, you are like the most sensitive part of my body. Don't think that I don't care for you. 
just because life is difficult, just because you're facing opposition, I do more deeply than you can imagine, and I will not ignore whatever opposition you're facing. Don't think I don't care just because it's taking me longer to respond than you may think I should. Which leads to six. God is playing the long game. There are lots of things as you read through these verses in chapter two that are shocking, but maybe the most shocking for an Israelite to hear would have been verse 11, where God says this, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Many nations, even the nations that have like abused you Israelites, they're gonna join to my people. They're gonna be my family. What's interesting is that the Israelites didn't see this promise fulfilled. And God didn't tell them how or when he would fulfill it. But he fulfilled it in the church. Like, you and I are the nations. You and I are God's fulfillment of this promise. But he's not done because he has more people from more nations that he wants to bring into his family. And promises like this can motivate us in our efforts to reach the nations, both here and abroad. I don't know if there is any greater challenge or any greater opposition that Christians, that the church will face today than in its mission to reach the nations, especially unreached people in the nations. And if we want to see that goal accomplished, that then we need to be able to bank on promises like this, that God really is going to save the nations and draw people from all nations to himself to enable us to get through whatever difficulty comes our way. I was talking to a missionary who lives in New York City a couple weeks ago. I had to interview him for one of my classes. And him and his wife are missionaries in New York City to one of the Uh, largest, actually I think it is the largest Muslim population in New York City. They've been there for three years. Their main goal is to reach these Muslim people with the gospel and see them come to faith in Christ. Three years. They haven't seen one person come to faith in Christ. That'd be pretty tempting for me to give up. Three years? Uh, I think I'm out of here. I'll go do something easier. And and it was fascinating. In our conversation, he said this. We aren't discouraged. We know that people coming to faith from a Muslim background is usually preceded by years of toiling and praying, and then the Lord does something amazing. If we want to reach people with the gospel, lost people, especially unreached people, then it's going to take a type of bold faith that says, even though this is going to take longer than we want, it's going to take more giving, more praying, more going, but we're going to bank on the fact that God fulfills his promises. And so we're going to keep doing it, keep doing it and believing that one day he will fulfill his promises to bring people from all nations into his family. Because this is number seven, God is building his church and overcoming all obstacles. That's the overall thrust of this vision. God is building up his church, his people. What's interesting is if you go back to the first vision, what does it say is used to take down the opposition of the nations, the horns? God says it's craftsmen. And if you look at that word, where that word is most often used throughout the Old Testament is to refer to people who are building or fixing the temple. That's who craftsmen are. 
they're building and fixing the temple. God's saying to his people in that time, I'm not going to come over opposition through military might, through politics, through wealth. I'm going to overcome it through craftsmen who build up my temple. And then you just trust me that I'll deal with the opposition. God tells us in our day, he's going to overcome opposition by building up the church as we seek to make disciples, as we proclaim the gospel, as we teach the scriptures, and it feels so small and insignificant, that's part of God's cosmic plan to overcome all opposition to his people. It's incredible. The church is growing. The church is being built up. I want to ask, is our view of the church, and not just Keystone, but I'm talking like the worldwide church, is our view of the church that it's more like Tesla or more like Hess oil. Like Kyle, what in the world are you talking about? What I, what I mean is Tesla is one of the fastest growing companies in the world. They're multiplying, they're growing year in, year out. You see more Tesla cars on the road probably than you ever had before. Hess oil is one of the most rapidly shrinking companies in the world. When, when's the last time you were at a Hess gas station? One is growing, multiplying, gaining ground. The other is shrinking, losing ground, just trying to hold on to what it has. What is our view of the church? Which one of those describes our view of the church? Is it growing, multiplying, even when we may not see it in our own land or own place? Yeah, it is, because God's growing it. And we don't have to sit back and think it's shrinking and we just have to hold on to whatever ground we have because God is going to build his church. And that should encourage us as we face all sorts of opposition in our own lives as we seek to make dis- disciples and grow as disciples. All right, th- those are, I would say, seven things that we should know if we want to press through opposition. Now I want to point to one thing we need to see when we face opposition. When we face opposition, we need to see not only this vision, but the one who ultimately fulfills this vision. Because here's what this vision is like. It's like a preview for a movie that Israel sees, and then the movie doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come. And then 520 years later, Jesus steps on the scene, and here's what John says about Jesus when he steps on the scene. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who fulfills this vision. We could go through and point it all out, but we just don't have time this morning. But but we have to see he is the ultimate craftsman who is building his church. And when we face opposition, we should get our eyes on him for a couple reasons. One, because when we look at Jesus, we see someone who faced the greatest opposition to come and rescue us. That he gave up the glory of being at God's right hand to become a man and then to submit to death on a cross. And he didn't give up and he didn't back down and he didn't give in to rescue us as unworthy sinners. That that can motivate us when we face opposition as we follow him in this life. To see him staring down all opposition and not giving up in order to rescue us. Number two, because when we do cave in the face of opposition, when things get difficult and we say, I'm done, I just can't keep doing this, what we then need is not to beat ourselves up, but to look back to Jesus, 
the one who was perfect in the face of opposition, the one whose record is now ours as a result of faith in him. And then number three, because we see in Jesus, opposition is part of God's plan. Opposition is part of God's plan. It always was and it always will be on this earth. It was through opposition to Jesus, through his death on the cross, that God ultimately brought about his plan to save sinful people, like me, like you. And it's now through opposition that God continues his plan in our own lives as we follow Christ in this world. Opposition can't thwart God's plan because opposition is part of God's plan. When we know that truth, like deep down in our bones, we believe it, like that's true, that enables us to press on in the face of whatever opposition we're facing. Not losing hope, not losing joy, but actually having hope and joy flourish in the face of opposition because we know God is at work, God's at work. There is an incredible story in the Bible in Acts chapter 16 that you're likely familiar with. Acts chapter 16 tells the story of Paul and Silas, two missionaries, and they go out to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples, and they're risking everything. And they get to this town called Philippi, and they see a couple of people come to faith. It's like, awesome, let's go. And then they get accused of a crime they didn't commit. They get drug away. They get beaten half to death with rods, and they get thrown in the worst part of the prison. And I think if that's me, that's where I give up. That's where I give up. Or at least where I start complaining. Like God, after all I've done, I've obeyed you, I've followed Jesus, and I end up in a prison, half beaten to death, possibly gonna die tomorrow when they pull me out of here. And yet we know that's not what Paul and Silas are doing. What do we find them doing in that prison that night? Singing in worship singing so loudly in worship that all the other prisoners in the prison hear them singing. Like they faced the worst possible opposition and they sung through it. They worshiped their way through it. How? How could they do that? Because they knew the gospel. They knew that deep down God loves them. They knew that opposition is part of God's plan and he's gonna accomplish something great like bringing the jailer to faith and so they worship their way through some of the most difficult things they faced. I don't know about you, but I want to be someone who faces opposition and worships my way through it. To do what Zechariah says in Zechariah 2.10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. And we can do this in whatever opposition we face when we know we've got a big God with big plans who loves us with a really big and incredible love. Let's pray. Father, you know exactly what we're facing right now. You know exactly what we're facing in the coming weeks because we are like the apple of your eye. Give us faith to believe that your plans are greater than we can imagine. Give us faith to hold to your promises. Give us faith to trust that you're a big God. And God, enable us to press on, worshiping our way through whatever opposition comes our way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.